The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about interesting privacy legislation in the state of California, and we have our privacy hero from California on the phone with us. We have had this wonderful senator from California on our show. This is, I think, our fourth time in five years that we've had him on. So we're always so thrilled because he is really the one, we think, one of the best leaders in privacy legislation in the country. We are speaking today with Senator Joe Simidian, and he was elected the California State Senate in 2004 to represent the 11th State Senate District, which includes part of San Jose, Santa Clara, Santa Cruz, and that's the Silicon Valley area. His public service over the years includes being a state assembly member, which he was before he was the senator. He was a member of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors, the mayor of beautiful Palo Alto, and president of the Palo Alto School Board. It's kind of fun. I Many years ago, I was on a school board elected also. He also served on the election observer as an election observer for El Salvador and Bosnia, and he participated in refugee uh, relief and resettlement efforts in Albania and Kosovo. In the Senate, Joseph Midian chairs the Select Committee on Privacy and the Environmental Quality Committee. Of course, we're most excited about, well, about both, but especially the privacy. And he also serves as a member of numerous other committees. The Capitol Weekly, which is a newspaper, identified Joe Simidian as one of the half dozen most effective members of the legislature. And the San Jose Magazine has repeatedly recognized him as one of the Power 100 of Silicon Valley. And in 2003, Simidian was selected by Scientific American Magazine as one of the Scientific American 50 leaders in technology from around the world. And he is just terrific. He's, his work has been quoted or noted in many publications, including the Atlantic Week, Weekly, Condé Nast Traveler, Mother Jones, People Magazine, and Scientific American, and much more. I've seen him quoted in numerous uh, newspapers across the country. His many media appearances range from CNN to Dr. Phil. And, of course, he's been on our show three times, and we think he is our privacy hero. We're, we're adopting him as our special privacy hero. And you can learn a lot more about him, the legislation he's introduced, the laws that have been passed at 
www.sen.ca.gov or senatorsimidian.com. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, Joe. Mari, good to be back with you, and thank you. That You couldn't have been more kind. I appreciate it. Uh, well, we think you are just so terrific. Now, b- before I start, people have asked me, I was just telling somebody that I was going to be interviewing you today and talking about how, how wonderful you are and how you and Senator Peace years back both introduced that uh, security breach legislation, which was really transforming the whole country. So they wanted to know, how in the world did you get interested in privacy? You know, I, my, my interest in privacy really uh, grew out of the fact that I was a Silicon Valley legislator. I was new to the state legislature 10 years ago, uh, and I was increasingly uh, just sort of a, had a natural curiosity about online privacy issues. I approached the uh, Speaker of the Assembly at the time uh, about uh, trying to put together some sort of a a group that could work on some of these privacy issues. And he said, well, great, why don't we create a select committee on privacy and uh, why don't we make you the chair and go to it? And um, that was Speaker Bob Hertzberg from Southern California, uh, and he really provided me with a venue from which I could explore these issues. And as I say, I my, my interests initially were focused on the online world and then have grown broader since in the past decade. I've have had a chance to look at a, a wider range of privacy issues. And a select committee, Mari, is really a study committee uh, in the parlance of the California State Legislature. We don't hear bills the way policy committees do. Uh, but if you, uh, I think, are smart about the way you use these select committees, you can hold hearings, you can pull together the resources you need and the staff to help you develop policy and uh, really, as you know, that's been the venue from which I've been able to develop quite a few pieces of legislation, uh, going back to that early effort with the security breach notification legislation uh, almost a decade ago now. You have just done so many good things. I, I have to laugh because when you suggest something, all of a sudden you get to be chair of it, you know? Well, that's, no, it, it's, <laughs> you know, there, uh, and it's, there's a, a growing hole, I fear, in terms of uh, interest and uh, attention to privacy issues in the legislature. When I uh, was a new member, gosh, we had a, a half dozen members of the legislature, particularly in the Senate, who were focused on these issues. I'm thinking of people like uh, then uh, Senator Jackie Speier, now a member of Congress, uh, former Senator Steve Peace, uh, former Senator Liz Figueroa, Kevin Murray uh, was also someone uh, former Senator Deborah Bowen, who's right. now our Secretary of State. Right. But as you hear me rattle off these names, they're gone. The they're gone, <laughs> and so there are there are fewer and fewer folks who are focusing on these privacy issues. And uh, my hope is that new members will take an interest and find a way to explore the area. They these issues sort of cross cut, you know, in the Senate Judiciary Committee, some of them in the uh, Business and Professions Committee. But having this select committee in place has been a way to make sure that we have at least one place in the state Senate uh, and in the state legislature where we focus on privacy issues as such. Well, I think that's great. You'll have, I laugh because I was talking to somebody for, from the state bar about, cause I'm a member of the law practice management and technology committee. And I said, you know, you really need a privacy committee to be at least a subcommittee of that. So guess what? I'm like being dragged in to help get that going. No, so that's, as you said, when, you know, be careful what you volunteer for because somebody will say yes and put you to work. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's what's coming for me. And then I think I'll have to drag you into it too. But just, just maybe as an advisor or something right. like that. But just remember that when I call on you. Happy to be a resource if I can be. 
still, you have done so many wonderful things in privacy and so much great legislation and some passed and some didn't and some, you know, hopefully I've learned from working on legislation myself is maybe the first year it doesn't get there and the second year, but eventually you keep coming back and and, and sometimes things happen. Let's talk about the criminal e person. I'm let me say that again, the criminal e-personation bill that was signed by Governor Schwarzenegger this past fall. Why don't you explain what that bill is and, and how it came into being? Sure. It, it, it's, a, it's a growing phenomenon. Uh, malicious e-personation is essentially uh, the practice of impersonating someone online uh, with some sort of malicious intent and easy to do. You don't have to be uh, a techie by any stretch of the imagination to make this happen. What I'm talking about, Mari, is what happens when somebody goes and sets up a Facebook account with uh, your name and your photo. Easy to do and, and, frankly, hard to police. What happens when someone decides to send out emails using a email address that uh, incorporates your name? Uh, and, in fact, I was approached by uh, a Silicon Valley business leader who said he had personally uh, either experienced or knew folks uh, in his friends and family and professional circle who had been subject to these kind of behaviors, took a look at it and discovered that it was a, a fairly widespread phenomenon and that really, you know, the law in California had failed to keep pace. We were looking at legislation on impersonation uh, that dating back to the late 1800s. So, you know, the question was, does a 19th century law really help you solve a 21st century problem? And uh, the conclusion I came to was no. Uh, and so what we've got now is a uh, an impersonation statute uh, that addresses e-personation, malicious e-personation specifically, and it says that it will be unlawful uh, if you are online and without someone's consent to impersonate them online if you are uh, intending to either harm or intimidate or threaten or defraud. And uh, I think... Uh, it's uh, hopefully will serve as a deterrent, but also will give folks some recourse if someone uh, behaves badly in this way. Now, let me ask you something. How does the bill include anything in being able to have that taken down or have the law enforcement get the information of the IP address of the bad person? Does that go that far? Well, because it does make it unlawful, the bill does two things, actually, that um, it, it both makes it uh, unlawful uh, and it makes it a crime, makes it a misdemeanor. Uh, so it's punishable by both fines and jail time. Uh, but that means that, you know, the, the weight of the criminal justice system is behind someone who feels they have been wronged. Uh, and then it also provides for uh, civil remedies, meaning an individual uh, member of the public can go bring suit not only for uh, damages but to uh, have such a thing taken down. But you know, really, it's often too late. I mean, imagine if somebody decides to impersonate uh, you online, Mari, and sends email messages to everybody on your block saying, uh, Sam, you've got the ugliest lawn in the neighborhood, and it's Mari. And then yeah. the next house, it's, you know, Sally, when is your uh, son going to stop abusing drugs? And then the next house down the block, it's Bob, what about your wife's gambling debts? And so on and so forth. And even if you can get back to them all and tell them that wasn't me, that was a case of uh, malicious e-personation. There's some damage that's done. There are some relationships that are strained. Worse still, perhaps, what if they did it in your workplace? Um, so the, the notion here is that uh, now that we have a law in the books, we hope it'll be a deterrent to 
folks in California and elsewhere who might be thinking about this kind of thing, knowing that uh, they can be subject to criminal penalties and that they could be uh, sued individually in a civil court, um, I'm hoping will uh, help curb the abuse. Uh, while still, I should say, important, protect First Amendment rights. We, we're very careful with the language to make sure that we're talking about only when it is online, only when it is credible, only when we're talking about a real person, uh, only when it is done without consent, and as I said earlier, only when there is some intent to harm or intimidate or threaten or defraud. Right. And Don't want to leave use room for right. that political uh, satire that is, you know, absolutely protected and should be. Right. But it is basically tantamount to, to cyber identity theft, which, you know, I have a whole chapter on cyber identity theft because I have been getting people who, you know, CEOs of companies who someone has pretended to be them and created emails and sent them out to humiliate him. Or I, I've had all those ones that you've talked about. And I've also had clients who've called me who someone has put up a, a uh, website on a social networking site, like a, a dating site, right. and said, come to my house and I want to, you know, I'm hot to trot with you. And, and you know, obviously they weren't. So, And, and that's exactly the kind of thing that is now explicitly against the law. And as I say, I think we, I think we took the right course by having both criminal sanctions as well as civil sanctions. Uh, part of the reason I was approached by the local business leader who raised the issue with me was he said when he talked to police, when he talked to uh, folks at the DA's office, they said, look, there's no remedy. There's nothing that we can look to in state law that we can enforce. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, Santa Clara County, Silicon Valley. This is one of the 15 largest counties in the country. It's the heart of uh, technology industry. And I thought, well, if, if our local police folks and our local DA's office are telling us they don't have the tools they need, uh, then we probably do need to take another look. And ultimately, I was persuaded by what I saw going on around the country. Um, a couple of other states had started down this path a little bit, New York and Texas. But they were really more sort of tied towards the cyberbullying uh, issue uh, rather than simple malicious impersonation as such. So I think we're, you know, as we so often do here in California, we're, we're sort of a little bit on the cutting edge. But uh, I think people realize it's a, it's a growing concern. It definitely is. And I've had to help a lot of victims and, you know, sometimes you, you, the people who are doing this, you don't have any money. So the civil remedy is, you know, crazy. The, the, the fact that so many times people wouldn't get, be able to get a police report was a problem. So now they can get a police report. And just to let you know that what I've tried to analogize so that we could get those documents from, of the, of the cyber impersonation, um, I've actually used the Fair Credit Reporting Act to say that when you get a police report, and you fill out an affidavit, you can get all documents of that, you know, online email um, application or online uh, social networking application or what it is that you can get copies of it for free and without a subpoena. So, so it's so important to be able to get that police report and then we can analogize and use other laws to be able to at least get that documentation and make the, um, you know, the, the service provider do something. Say that's the problem is, you know, you want them to, to take this stuff down. And uh, we had a guy on, for the CEO of Reputation Defender, who uh, came on. And the truth is, is that stuff never goes away. You can, you can try and bury it by adding on new stuff about you, but, but like you're, you're absolutely right. That stuff never, I mean, it's archived somewhere. It's, yeah. it's there. 
And that's the, that's the real scary part. So I think you took a great stride, and thank you for doing that. Well, it was a, it was a fascinating uh, opportunity for me, and I, I think you know the the point you make is absolutely spot on, Mari. Which is, you know, first and foremost, you want to try and deter people from engaging in that behavior. But if and when it happens, you you really need to have some kind of remedy in place to do the very best you can to unring that bell. Can never do it entirely, but um, you need to know that there's some tool out there after the fact if uh, deterrence isn't a total uh, success. Right, right. So we were just talking about how this could happen on a social networking site. It happens on blogging sites. You know, it can happen anywhere on the Internet. That's our Wild West. So what about the threat? What do you think about the threat of online privacy when we're in social networking? You know, what what if, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I think, um, and, uh, you know, I think this is consistent with your own work. Uh, you know, I, my, I've enjoyed my copy of uh, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, by the way. I, I, I think there's nothing as important and powerful as just being a thoughtful and well-informed consumer and member of the public. And um, I am, uh, you know, sort of, I never cease to be amazed. I think it's probably the best way to put it. Uh, You know, in California, as you know, privacy is a fundamental constitutional right. It is enshrined in our California Constitution. It was put there by the voters of California as a ballot measure. And people tell me repeatedly that they value their privacy, and then they go off and behave in ways that just leave you scratching your head particularly in terms of the kind of information that is made readily available. And, you know, it's one thing for somebody who's a, who's a, a public official. You know that you're going to surrender a fair uh, degree of your privacy, and that's a, a judgment you make. But so much information is so readily uh, shared uh, without an understanding of the consequences, I think. And, and I think part of it is we, we need to do a better job of uh, helping folks understand that what seem like individual bits of information that are sort of harmless when they stand alone, when taken together, can really provide a pretty comprehensive picture uh, of someone's uh, situation and circumstances and may uh, provide a whole lot more information than was originally anticipated. So it's really, I think, a, a question of empowering members of the public and consumers with information making sure that some of the choices they make are thoughtful choices with an understanding of the, the privacy costs, if you will, of the decisions that they make. And, you know, Joe, I think that is what you're saying is so important. I don't think they really get it. Um, I just interviewed five different teenagers, for example, across the country, one in Northern California, one in Southern California, one in the Midwest, one in the Northeast, and one in the South. And uh, they were all teenagers, and I asked them about Facebook and and other social networking, and they said they use it. And I said, well, and most of their parents, except for one of them whose mother happens to be a privacy officer of a major company, but most of them, they knew more than their parents did. That's number one. Number two, I asked them, well, what are the dangers, do you think, when you're on these social networking sites? And they said, oh, well, we shouldn't talk to strangers. So one kid said, I said to him, I said, well, how many friends do you have on Facebook? He said, oh, I have 600. And I said, well, how many of them do you really know face to face? You know, and then he kind of went, well, um, you know, he, they start to think that they know these people. They don't know if the person that they're talking to really is 16 or if it he's or she is, you know, a 58 year old pervert. 
Yeah. That's that's the problem. And I think the schools are a little bit clueless as well. They don't understand the privacy implications either. And so all they're saying is don't talk to strangers, but they don't tell them that in in effect, nothing you put up there is really private, even if you put those privacy settings up there. We've just seen all this in the news recently with, with Facebook, how there's all of these marketers that get in there. And if you, you know, if you uh, download apps, forget it, everything's of it. Some suddenly everybody has access to it. So I think the, the consumer really doesn't understand the ramifications. And a lot of us don't either, even though you and I are probably more savvy than most others. Well, and it's, and I, I would, um, you know, I would be the first to say, uh, there's a whole lot more that I could and should know on a daily basis uh, as I go about my uh, not only my work routine but my personal routine. It's um, you, you may remember one of the pieces of legislation that uh, Governor uh, Gray Davis signed uh, back in 2003, just before he left the building after his recall, uh, was a bill that I had authored in 2002 and was vetoed, and then came back again at the governor's suggestion and tried again in 2003. And it was, uh, I thought, simplicity itself, but we, you know, we had some opposition, which was that uh, anyone who's doing online commerce in California has to has to provide access to their privacy policy exactly. right up front in a, in a prominent place. And then equally important, in my view, was uh, we made it plain that when you make representations in a privacy policy, those are enforceable under California state law. So when, however modest or rigorous your privacy uh, protections are, uh, whatever you promise, you've got to deliver on. Yep. But, I, but I, I thought it was important just to make sure that when you went online, you could find your way to the privacy policy uh, right up front, that that wasn't uh, obscure or hidden away somewhere, uh, that you didn't have to go through 15 clicks to find your way to it. But I think, you know, how often truly do most of us even take a minute to look at the privacy policy and in many cases, as you know, the privacy policy is not written in terribly user-friendly language. Right. But it, it was a, a, a start, and I thought a good one. And interestingly, it um, uh, you know you wonder when you author these these pieces of legislation, do they have an impact? Sure enough, uh, I was talking with folks uh, at the Samuelson Clinic and uh, at UC Berkeley who handle a lot of these technology issues. They told me that in the days and weeks before that that measure took effect, July first of two thousand and four. Sure enough, companies across the globe were uh, amending their privacy policies and uh, restructuring their uh, pages in order to comply with California state law because they'd be front and center with their privacy policy and that the terms of the privacy policy were going to be uh, adhered to or uh, otherwise they'd be found in violation of state law. So, But again, that's only the first step. It, it requires each one of us as a personal uh user to take advantage of the fact that that information is now accessible and something you can, in theory, at least rely on. Yes. And and because of your leadership in this area, the Federal Trade Commission jumped on board, too. And they've been, you know, telling everybody, well, you have to have a privacy policy that is understandable. <laughs> so yeah, no, that, somebody can it, read it. <laughs> I, I was, And I was struck, you know, um, I, I hadn't given any thought to this particular piece of legislation for a while. And then a couple of years ago, half a dozen privacy groups approached Google and said, we don't think your homepage is uh, compliant with state law. And Google said, no, we think it is. And they went back and forth. But one of the things we had done in the bill, which I, uh, was a light touch, but I think proved to work well, was I said, look, I, I don't want to be encouraging frivolous litigation. I don't want people to play gotcha games. Right. So let's put a provision in the law that says if somebody hasn't properly posted their privacy policy, you send them a letter and they have 30 days to get themselves right. Right. 
Right. And then if after 30 days they fail to comply, you can commence litigation if that's necessary. Right. Give them a chance to and, comply. And, and while Google never uh, acknowledged that they were um, uh, out of compliance and probably would still make the case that they weren't, and I certainly don't have a judgment about that, uh, all I know is that on the 30th day after they got the letter, <laughs> right. uh, the word privacy showed up on that very clean homepage that yes. Google provides us all and uh, hopefully gives people uh, the opportunity to access the privacy policy and understand a little bit about what is and isn't provided as a result. Yeah. I mean, the bills that you have introduced that have become law have really had a tremendous impact. And I want to just introduce you again, because if you're driving by and you don't know this wonderful guy with a great voice, by the way, always your voice is so wonderful. We are speaking with Senator Joe Simidian, who is a California state senator representing the 11th state Senate district, which includes the whole Silicon Valley. His public service over the years, he has been a state assembly member, a board of supervisors. Uh, He's also been mayor of Palo Alto and president of the Palo Alto School Board and so many other things. And I have to laugh because I looked at your face page and I saw that um, you proposed to your wife the night that you were elected to the Board of Supervisors. I, well, it's, it's actually even a little better than that, Mara, because <laughs> I uh, admitted this was back in 1996. It had been a very tough year and a long, hard campaign, and uh, polls closed at 8, and at 15 minutes before 8, I asked my wife if uh, we could sit down and talk for a minute before we went out to the what we <laughs> hoped would be the victory party. Didn't know for sure. And uh, she, you know... Um, didn't know what it was I wanted to talk about, and so I, I asked her, and she said yes. I said, well, come on, let's go. Whatever happens tonight, it's a good day. So, um, <laughs> And then uh, without really thinking about it an awful lot, uh, you know, since I was surrounded by uh, so many friends uh, at the campaign party, I said, oh, and one more thing. Um, and, you know, then all of a sudden discovered that uh, I had not been terribly mindful of my own privacy because <laughs> all of a sudden it was, you know, all over the newspapers that uh, I had proposed the night before, and um, but uh, that's the kind of moment when uh, if you get both uh, good news at the polls as well as great news uh, from your uh, bride-to-be, uh, you, you can't have a much better night than that. So it was good all around. Very cute. Very cute. So in saying that, I, I have a, you know, I only have business Facebook accounts. You know, I have a, two of them, actually. Right. And um, and so, you know, I see you have it. You know, I'm doing Twitter and, and linking to important legislation like yours and linking to important things that I think people should look at. So what kind of extra precautions that you take? Well, I think, you know, it, it's a little it's a little different for those of us who have chosen to be in the public arena. Um, you you understand when you do that. <clears throat> excuse me. You understand when you do that, that there are going to be some uh, surrenders of privacy and uh, I have a uh, what's called a politician page uh, with my 1,188 friends on it, and um, find that it's a, a, a useful and important way to stay in touch with the folks that I represent and folks from not only around the state and the nation, but around the globe uh, who are interested in what we're doing here. That being said, you know I exercise some thought and judgment about what I am and am not prepared to share, uh, and. Uh, you know, in terms of the background information I provide, I you know I, I feel like if people want to know what my reading tastes are, I'm prepared to share that much of my uh, of myself. I, I don't find that particularly intrusive. But um, but I think uh, whether you're you know I would call myself a third tier celebrity uh, or just an entirely private uh, private individual, just stopping and asking, you know, is that something I really want? As you said earlier, 
out in the public domain where any one of six, seven billion people on the planet can have access to it and where it may well live in perpetuity. Uh, yes. That's, you know, everybody and forever are two big words. And yeah. when you put them together, they're really <laughs> two big words. Exactly. And, you know, just thinking about that. Now, I don't mind the fact, uh, and I'm, in fact, I'm happy to share the fact uh, with anyone who comes to my page that I'm a big fan of uh, authors like Somerset Mom and Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene and have a particular uh, affinity for an American author named Ward Just. Um, if that tells them a little bit about who I am, I'm happy to share that. But uh, as I say, you know, some thought needs to go into just how much we share. And, uh, and in my case, as I say, it's uh, accessible to anyone out there in the general public. But, uh, you know, I hope every one of your listeners and, you know, if they've got kids, their kids as well, will uh, sort of think about, you know, those two big words, uh, you know, everybody and forever. And also understanding that, you know, uh, what you're prepared to share at 16 may not be what you want to have shared at the age of 46 when uh, there's a job interview coming up. So right. um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, I really do think uh, the growing uh, use of uh, online information by folks who are hiring and firing uh, ought to be a cause for concern to even some of the youngest on online users. Um, you know, there's an awful lot that um, you may not want to share with a prospective employer, uh, even if you're prepared to share it with a handful of close friends. Yeah, I know. Recently, the the New York State Bar came up with a um, a, a rule of professional conduct saying that. If someone has something on their public Facebook or their public MySpace or whatever, then that's fair game to use in a lawsuit. But if you have to, ethically, if you have to get a friend to go in and get this information for you, then that is a violation of their ethical right. rules. So I thought that was interesting. But people know that whatever you put up there, it's going to be used. It could be used against you. And people who you think that are your best friends that you're sharing information with now Unfortunately, they could share it later. So I think it's back to exactly what our what our fine senator is telling us that you know always and forever. So <laughs> so just remember, don't ever put up anything that you don't think that the whole world should see. Absolutely. So I think that's just the best thing, and I, I think it's we're kind of evolving. Do you know what I mean? It's like our, the, a lot of parents don't even know how to use Facebook themselves. They don't even know what they're doing. And so these kids are getting into it, and they don't have the experience or the understanding, and they're not being taught this. So I think there's going to be quite a bit of fallout first before people start to get it. Do you know what I mean? Right. And unfortunately, that means that too many people will have to learn the hard way with some unfortunate consequences before the message really uh, comes home. And I think that's the part that, as I say, should... um, Encourage folks to err on the side of caution until they've thought through the larger set of issues. Absolutely. Well, you've been trying to update this wonderful security breach legislation that you got passed. Oh, what was it? Two thousand four, I think it was. Well, actually, the security breach notification we got passed back in two thousand and two, and it took oh, yeah, effect right. in the middle of two thousand and three. That's so. right. That's right. I was thinking about Choice Point when that, that was the first one that was prosecuted was two thousand five. So I remember that now. But, yeah, you got it passed way back in 2002. And then you recently tried two years in a row to tighten it up to to let people know when they get that security breach letter exactly what was stolen or lost or displaced by an unauthorized person and it wasn't encrypted. 
So let's talk about that data breach bill, which was vetoed by the governor for the second time, right? Well, and actually it was, uh, this is the fourth year running uh, that we've tried to make what I think of as some fairly modest common sense updates. Uh, The point here, which will sound obvious to any listener, but uh, in the political process somehow is more of a struggle than it should be, is if you're going to get notified by someone that your data has been lost, stolen, or strayed, if it's been hacked and compromised, it's 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 kind of important that the letter you get uh, tell you the basic information you need to think about protecting yourself and do it in plain English. And while a lot of these letters are not bad, uh, a, a significant number are frankly not very helpful, and I sometimes hear from people that they're more confusing than they are helpful. You know, obvious questions are, well, what information did they get? When right. did they get it? Uh, what can I do to protect myself? Was this, you know, someone looking for a half a dozen files, in which case it might have been targeted at you or me? Or was this someone who, you know, happened to get access to 188,000 files and, you know, we're all at risk, but probably not in a targeted way? Um, the law at present isn't that specific. Uh, it seemed to me that we could do what probably a dozen or more states around the country have done, which is build on that early law and uh, provide an additional increment of clarity and protection. I actually thought about doing this four years ago, Mari, and um, mentioned it to a colleague, and he ended up pulling it into a piece of his own legislation. Uh, I was happy to have that happen. As long as it got done, didn't care that much who got it done. Right. And uh, the governor vetoed that larger piece of legislation that incorporated this simple fix. Then uh, three years ago, I did put the bill into the hopper, and my colleague, uh, who was still working on the larger set of issues, said, well, all right, but uh, your bill has to be tied to my bill if it's going to get through uh, the assembly. And I grumbled a little but said, well, I, I think that's a problem because I think the governor is going to veto your legislation. But uh, that's the way we tried it. And sure enough, uh, the governor vetoed his legislation, so that meant my legislation had to be vetoed as well. Mm. Then two years ago, I said, all right, now I'm going to just put the bill in as a standalone bill and I thought we were pretty well teed up. We'd been working closely with the governor's office. The staff seemed sympathetic to what we're trying to do. And, you know, this is just life. Two weeks before the bill went to the governor, there was a change in staff. Different fellow took on the assignment, <laughs> hadn't been in touch with us about the bill. And uh, candidly, I think he misunderstood how the bill would work, gave the governor a ne- negative recommendation, and the uh-huh. governor uh, vetoed the bill two years ago. This year, fourth year trying. <laughs> Put the bill in the hopper. Before I did that, talked to the governor's staff, said, now, look, I I don't need to do this just for another veto, but I think there's been some (laughs) confusion. What do you think? Uh, Asked about a couple of bills, and uh, to their credit, folks in the governor's office said, you know what, go ahead and give it another shot. The other bill that I had had that conversation on uh, did, in fact, go through and was signed after uh, previously being vetoed. But this one, um, I think, you know, uh, the governor was – uh, trying to move through a lot of product at the very last uh, days of the of the 30-day period he has. And the feedback I got was, you know, frankly, his view was, ah, I've already vetoed this a couple times. Why would I uh, sign it now? No. And, you know, I wasn't in the room to say, wait a minute, Governor, because uh, it doesn't work that way. So I'll try with a new governor. As I say, this is this bill had no opposition, uh, at least no formal opposition, Mari, when it went to the I governor know. this year. We had taken amendments to... Uh, address uh, concerns that we've gotten from the industry. That's one of the advantages of having to do it four years in a row is you, you work out all the bugs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that, that still wasn't enough for the governor. Uh, and, uh, you know, fair enough. He's the governor. He gets to sign or veto what he wants. And uh, But we'll have a, a new team in place next year, and I'll give it a try again. Because I really do think 
you know, if, if your information is compromised, thank goodness now we've got a law in the books that says you're going to get notice. But if you're going to get notice, it should be real, it should be meaningful, it should be helpful, it should let you make an informed judgment about, well, I'm not going to worry about it, or gee, I'm going to start looking at my credit card bills a little more carefully, or you know what, I'm going to close down that account. Ultimately, each consumer ought to be able to make that choice, but they can't make the choice if they don't have good information. Exactly. And luckily, our, you know, because of all the privacy promotion in our state, we do, we are one of two states that has an Office of Privacy Protection. And at that, and I'm, I'm glad that I get to sit as an advisor to that committee, but um, we have on that Office of Privacy Protection website, we have guidance for businesses on how to implement these private, these uh, privacy letters, these privacy security breach letters. We even have sample letters up there, and that's if you're listening and you're driving by, it's privacy.ca.gov. Free letters for how to write these security breach letters. We even have a whole list of recommended practices for security breach and how to deal with it. I was helping to do that. And so, you know, we have it. It's really easy. It doesn't cost a lot of money. These companies don't even have to have a lawyer to write those letters because the letters are right there and they're really a great guide. And, you know, also it saves these companies money. If they put it into the letter, they're not going to get 500 million calls. Well, that's right. And that was one of the reasons why uh, I think we did have uh, some support, but certainly no opposition from the business community. I was hearing from businesses that they actually would appreciate a little more specificity in the law so that they knew if they followed the prescription of the law as set forth in our amended uh, version, that they were home free, that they had done what they needed to do and that they could not be uh, uh, taken to task for a failure to comply with state law. So this was something that I saw as being not only helpful to California consumers, but helpful to California businesses who wanted to know with absolute certainty what they had to do to comply with state law. Um, And as I say, we'll give it another try. I think, you know, sometimes you just get so tangled up, and uh, that's what happened with this particular bill and this particular governor who who has been, you know, reasonably good, frankly, on some of these privacy issues, not willing to go as far or as fast as I would like to go in many instances, but who has signed a number of my other bills into law. So right. um, I, I think we just need a fresh start with uh, uh, a new set of eyes and ears on the bill when it comes through the system again. And thank goodness you're so persistent. <laughs> Well, it, you know, it is for all of your listeners, uh, you know, Maria, to just go a little far afield for a minute. I know these are times when a lot of folks are disappointed uh, with government at almost every level. Uh, but the word of encouragement I want to give them is um, it takes time. And the first time is not always the successful effort. And uh, you know, I've got legislation that I've carried. It's taken me six years in some cases to get what I thought was a pretty straightforward piece of legislation through both houses of the legislature and onto the governor's desk. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the privacy protections that are, are there now in connection with uh, online commerce uh, took at least a couple of years to move through the system. Uh, here we are a decade later saying, how can we improve the original security breach notification legislation? For, you know, it, it, 
it, it, as a friend of mine says, it's good to be smart, but it's also good to be lucky and persistent. And, uh, you know, uh, we can't do an awful lot about making our own luck sometimes, but we can keep, be persistent and good ideas sometimes just take time. Right. And particularly and, and, and for this doesn't some cost of these issues where we're on the cutting edge, Mario. I mean, yeah. that's, it, it is California's nature from a technology standpoint to be a little ahead of the curve on some of these things. And, uh, you know, it, it is going to be more of a uphill effort if you're the first state or one of the first states as opposed to the 48th, 49th, or 50th state to finally uh, figure it out. So right, that's, right. that's part of the challenge. Well, I think the other thing is, is this doesn't cost them really any money. You know, it's not like businesses. It's going to cost them a lot of money. They already have to do the letters. They, right. So you're not asking them for any extra cost. It's just clarification. So I think that's something that, that maybe they have to understand at that level is to really understand the bill. And, and Hopefully shows like this and, and more media understanding of why it's so important, I think that makes a, a heck of a lot of difference. Well, too. and, you know, looking back now with the benefit of eight years of experience, I think that this has been one of the strengths of the original security breach notification legislation that I worked on uh, with Senator Peace all those years ago, which is it takes a pretty light touch. We, You know, there is a clear requirement, and this applies to state government as well as to private sector folks. If you've you know lost somebody's information, if it's been hacked, if it's been compromised, you have to tell them. But there there is no prescription about what kinds of security measures you have to take. Nobody's telling you how you have to do it. But the requirement is there that if you come up short, if the information is compromised, you have to provide that notice. And there is some cost to that. And there's certainly some cost in terms of reputation or uh, brand uh, identity. And what we've done is say we'll let the market figure out how they want to respond to that obligation. And we have more secure systems to date than we did eight to ten years ago because people are saying, I don't want to have to provide that notice. I don't want to have that damage to my brand or my reputation. And as I say, we've let people figure out how to do that themselves, but given them, I think, a pretty powerful incentive to get it right. Exactly. You had the carrot in there that you don't have to notify as long as you encrypt or make it unreadable so exactly. so no hacker or someone else can, can get it. Well, I, I'll tell you, you've done so much. Let's talk about another bill, that the privacy bill, that deals with the fast track system, which I use all the time. There, there's a lot of scary things about who knows where I'm going, when I'm going. Let's talk about that bill. Well, it, you know, this was, a, this was an interesting one to me and uh, because... We were talking about a slightly different kind of privacy. We were talking about locational privacy, right. and um, not not a, a privacy issue that has gotten quite so much attention, or that I think is as quickly or uh, easily understood. But uh, you know, here in uh, my part of the world and and your part of the state as well, uh, when people are using fast track to get across the bridge and pay that toll. Uh, but even when they're not, if they're going across the bridge and paying cash, but there's a camera there that is recording every single car to make sure that someone doesn't simply drive through without paying the toll, you know, that is click, 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 a record of your movements. And it's not just a record of your movements when you go across the bridge. I, you know, some years ago, I, I noticed the sign that uh, when I went across the Bay Bridge here in the San Francisco Bay Area that said, you know, 28 minutes to SFO Airport. And I thought, how do they know that? Well, <laughs> They know that because the same RFID technology that allows them to record my passing for a toll uh, can then be read, uh, you know, 28 minutes later when that car is passing by the San Francisco airport, which means somebody knows whose car is passing by the San Francisco airport. 
And if you've you know, signed up for Fast Track, that, of course, means that your name, your address, your phone number, probably your email address is also on record. And that's quite a bit of information to have tied to your movements across the bridge, but also at other points around the region. And uh, again, I, I, you know, I think uh, no, no need for alarm. I, I don't want to overstate the problem, but you know, ask and answer some some basic questions, which is, you know, are there privacy protections in place that ensure that that information is going to stay confidential to your local transportation agency? Is the information kept forever? One of the things I was uh, both surprised and disappointed to learn is there's no process in most transportation agencies to ever purge the information. Oh, my so goodness. Two what years, do they need five it five years, for? ten yeah. years, 20 years later, yeah. there is a record of your every movement uh, over that two, five, ten, or 20-year time period. One of the things we did in the bill was say, look, if you've got that information, it can't be sold or shared with a third party without permission. So it has to be kept confidential now as a matter of law. Got that bill passed this year, and it takes effect on January the 1st but also uh, that the information has to be purged after some reasonable period of time. I had sought for six months for reasons that are long and complicated. Uh, We ended up having to settle for four years and six months. I think that's too long. It was the best we could get. Uh, But it's a start. And I think on a lot of these privacy issues, just raising the issue forces people to come to grips with the fact that there are privacy issues that are implicit in the particular technology they're using. And look, I'm a Silicon Valley guy, so I am pro-technology. I think you know the, uh, the technology is, uh, is, is nothing but good news on most fronts. But then you have to be thoughtful and responsible about how you use the technology. And in this case, as I say, some basic privacy protections were missing in state law, the first and obvious one being don't sell or share it with anyone uh, without permission. And for gosh sakes, when you no longer needed to do business, Urge it, because uh, the one thing you can do to make sure that the information isn't abused is get rid of it altogether. Exactly. If you if you have it hanging around too long, it's just ripe for a security breach. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you know, there look, good people work in these agencies, uh, just as they do in most uh, private sector and public sector venues. But you know, there's always the bad apple who, for a couple hundred bucks, is going to be compromised. And you know, too many stories of people who's information is compromised because uh, somebody gets to uh, somebody with a, a few extra dollars and, um, as I say, trying to put some protections in place to make that less likely to happen. Yeah, and people don't think about this, like how could it be used? Uh, well, let's say it's used to say, you know, for your employer to see exactly where you were going and how, when you were going, even after work, you know, where were you going? Or... Well, and the, 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 one, the cases that have gotten a little notoriety in my part of the world are folks who are in uh, ugly divorce proceedings. Exactly. And all of a sudden there's a subpoena and uh, questions about whether so-and-so was where they were when they said they were or whether maybe they had uh, some, some other uh, item on their uh, daily calendar at that particular time of day. And it, no, I mean, it, you know, look, this is literally a roadmap to your personal life. I mean, right. It is, where were you, when were you, and over a period of time, are you going to the racetrack? Are you going to your oncologist? Are you going to see your therapist? Exactly. Are you uh, going to see uh, the girlfriend that nobody knew you had? Are you, know, are you going to uh, work a second job in violation of the agreement you had that you'd work exclusively for one employer? Uh, all of that becomes 
uh, knowable when you start to piece together some of this information, particularly over longer periods of time. And that was another provision in the bill, which was it's only available to law enforcement when there's a bona fide good cause. Right, right. You know, we've talked before about um, that technology is wonderful. And, and I know from the Silicon Valley, you are very pro-technology. You're pretty savvy about all the technology. I love technology, but we've talked before about what they call privacy by design, which you've talked about to me, about having the architecture as you're building these wonderful technologies, right. build right into the architecture, the privacy, so that you don't have to go back later and try and change the thing. Well, and, you know, when I, uh, in fact, when we looked at this, uh, the fast-track bill, as we refer to it, dealing with locational privacy issues, one of the complaints I heard from transportation agencies, transportation agencies up and down the state, including your own Orange County Transportation Agency, was, well, gee, there's a cost involved with purging the information. <laughs> now, you know, it seemed to me a little hard to comprehend that it was all that hard to push the delete button, but uh, that was, no, that was the serious argument made repeatedly at the state capitol. But, but to your point about uh, privacy by design, you know, the pitch I made was, well, going forward, let's be sure that when you design your data systems, you design it in a way that allows you to easily, and, uh, you know, it should be at next to no cost, delete that information rather than design a system which is built around the notion that you will hold this information in perpetuity even though you no longer have a legitimate business use for it. That's just that's an easy thing to do if someone will give it a moment or two of thought before they design the system. Right, and if it's too big of a file, they're going to want to get rid of it anyway, or are they just going to do a backup that then that can get lost or stolen? Yeah. And and are they going to encrypt this information, and who's going to have access to this information? Well, and part of privacy by design needs to be that the privacy component of any system needs to be user-friendly. It needs to be readily understood. Right. Um, you know, I, um, you know, some folks are BlackBerry people. I happen to be an iPhone guy. Uh, the the thing that I think we should all be thinking about is, all right, if there are privacy functions, are they easy to access? Are they easily understood? Can individual consumers then make in thoughtful individual choices, or, or is the privacy protection that may be there for them so hard to grasp and so hard to access uh, that it, it just is beyond the ability of most users to take advantage of what is uh, in theory there, but as a practical matter, not readily accessible. Right, right. And if when they're designing these new products, they can. that's the time to think about it. That's exactly the time to think about it because then it gets incorporated in. Yeah. And that leads me to when we've been talked, we've talked before about all of the radio frequency identifiers. And you've been a real leader in this area on RFID. Why don't we talk about some of the pieces of legislation and our RFID and what's going on with that? Well, uh, for some of your listeners who may not be familiar, we're talking about radio frequency identification technology. And it's uh, fairly common, even if folks are not sort of mindful of uh, the technology by that name, uh, for folks who have a card that gets them into the garage after uh, the end of the business day or that they use to access their office or their apartment. Uh, it, it's a, you know it's a simple radio frequency technology. It's been around since World War II, although obviously it's gotten better and better over the years. And it's pretty simple and straightforward. I, I use a card like that to get into the state capitol. Uh, I wave my card at the reader as I approach the capitol, and 
the reader is basically sending out an inquiry, which is, who are you and what makes you think you're entitled to get into the building, fella? And my card sends back a, a response that says, I'm State Senator Joe Simidian, and the reader says, okay, and all of a sudden the you know, gates go up and I'm, I'm in the building. And that that technology is really, you know, it's a it's a minor miracle. I, I don't fault uh, the technology certainly, but we need to be thinking about what are the privacy and security concerns inherent in that technology. And one of the privacy and security concerns that's inherent in that technology is anyone with a reader can pick it up. So it's not just you know uh, that particular reader. Uh, we've got you know more than enough documentation that other folks with a reader can pick that information up. And then the question is, what kind of information is stored on that card? Are there any limits to the information that's there? Is it just a unique identifier, which still has some problems, but, or is it more detailed information that we ought to be concerned about? Uh, is the information encrypted, as you suggested uh, earlier? Uh, is there a, uh, a Mylar bag that will protect the information from being read uh, remotely? And, you know, this is an issue these days. We've got our passports, which, uh, you know, to their credit, the State Department, who initially was headed down this path using RFID, I thought, in a relatively unsophisticated way, uh, finally got the message and improved the product that they incorporate into our passports these days. Uh, at the state level, my concern has been with uh, requiring government identity documents to contain this kind of a technology. One thing for consumers to make an informed choice, another thing for uh, you know, agencies or departments in the California state government or local school districts to say you have to use a card and it's going to contain this technology, and particularly if it doesn't have any limits on what information is contained and stored there and there are no privacy protections built in. Uh, so I, I have pushed on this area. Uh, we got strong resistance from the industry, uh, and even though the industry really was mixed, you know, you had folks who had higher-end technologies who said, geez, we'd love to have a market for some of the privacy protections that uh, can and should be built in. But ultimately, folks who had the the dumber end of the smart cards, if you will, said, <laughs> no, we want to make sure we can continue to push this product. And, um, we, you know, I had a, a bill or two vetoed by the governor, but ultimately um, the governor did sign the bill. This is Governor Schwarzenegger signed legislation that said, it will be unlawful to read or skim someone's personal information without their knowledge and consent. Uh, also a bill that prohibited uh, folks' employers, uh, believe it or not, from requiring a subcutaneous, meaning under the skin, an implant. Believe it or not, this was a phenomenon starting to take hold in some parts of the world. And, uh, oh, yeah, you know, Mexico, all the DAs, absolutely, right? Yeah. And I mean, imagine, and you can, you know, it's not that hard to imagine. Imagine yes. if you've got... 100 folks who work in a, a plant, and there's a particularly sensitive area in the plant where access is supposed to be limited, and somebody says, well, you know, easy way to make sure that doesn't mm. happen is to have folks with an RFID tag planted under their skin. How intrusive is that? Well, you know, uh, from a medical standpoint, probably not that intrusive, but from a privacy standpoint, pretty darn intrusive to yes, yes. say that your movements are going to be tracked during the course of a business day. Um, so, uh, and who else might be able to also track you? Well, that's right. And that, of course, is the issue. I, I think you may remember from previous conversations, Mari, I, I finally got frustrated at my own inability to communicate the, uh, the ease with which this technology can be compromised. And I, I finally said to one of the folks I was working with in my office, do we know somebody who can do the things I keep talking about? And they smiled and said, oh, yeah. I said, well, get them in here, will you? And so sure enough, one day, some young man who looks like he came from central casting for hacker dudes uh, came to my <laughs> office, and we introduced ourselves, and I, I 
said, uh, what can you do? He said, well, do you have your, your card for the Capitol? I said, sure. He said, do you have one for one of your colleagues in the assembly? I said, well, let me go get one. And ran across the hall to a colleague and came back and handed this uh, this fellow who had never seen before in my life my card, my colleague's card, and he handed him right back. And I said, I thought you needed the cards. And he said, oh, I'm done. What do you mean you're done? You just, I just handed them to you and you handed them back. He says, I'm done. I've read the cards. And uh, he had with his uh, his uh, personal computer sitting there in a, on, the, on his lap, had read the cards, and I sort of thought, well, okay, so you've read the cards. What else? And he said, well, I've cloned them. And I yeah. said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I mean that my, my machinery here now has cloned your cards and can effectively duplicate any function of your card. And I said, meaning what? And he said, well, you know, if you can get into a secure members-only area of the Capitol, I can now get into a secure members-only area of the Capitol. And then he sort of smiled and said, and better yet, it'll say that it's State Senator Joe Siminian <laughs> if I come in at 2.30 in the morning with my clone card. And, uh, and so identity I smiled, theft, yeah. I, I smiled right back and said, could you wait a minute while I call the CHP and the Sergeant at Arms and we, we need to talk. And uh, uh, sure enough, we went downstairs and, you know, walked right into a secure members-only entrance to the Capitol building and, uh, you know, solved that problem uh, pretty quickly by uh, canceling out access for that card and issuing me a new card. But it was literally, uh, you know, in the snap of a finger, in the blink yes. of an eye. And you and you showed the your your colleagues so that they started to get it too. Well, that's right. And and what was interesting is even then there were some folks who said, "Well, you know, you provided your cards." So, you know, I got one of my other uh, associates to wander through the halls for two or three hours with uh, with a clone a cloning device in their <laughs> backpack and just wandered around the halls. They came back in two or three hours and they had half a dozen cards that they had been able to read and clone. Right. Uh, during, you know, walk down the hall and the elevator up and down the staircase. Uh, so I think <laughs> you have some legislative successes. We had some setbacks as well. But I think the other thing, Mari, and again, for your listeners who are, you know, perhaps not as uh, plugged into the to the process of government uh, and who sometimes despair, you know, sometimes even when you lose, you win. Um, we I never got the bill passed that I wanted to get passed that said we're not going to put this technology into California driver's licenses. Right. But right. it hasn't happened, and part of the reason it hasn't happened is because the folks at DMV know that if they come forward with a proposal, uh, it's going to be met with skepticism. And um, you know, and, that's and, why I, and they actually formed a a committee which I was on, the ID theft and privacy committee of the DMV. So I think they. They heard what you were doing, and they, they got it. But that's also why it's important that these privacy issues don't disappear with the departure of uh, any one member. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to be termed out of the state Senate in a couple of years. And, you know, important that other members of the legislature pick these issues up. And just as I was able to build on the good work of people who preceded me, you know, hopefully new members will come along who share the interest uh, and commitment on privacy issues, and they'll pick up where I've had to leave things off. Well, we are almost at the end. You're, we're going to have to leave off here, but you are a fearless leader, and so you're going to have to help bring those other legislators in the, in the fold and well, get them I'm, all excited about all the great things that you're doing. I'm looking forward to it, and thanks again for all your work. I, you know, Back to the comment I made earlier, it, all the legislation in the world, Mari, is not a substitute for folks understanding the importance of these privacy issues and what they themselves can do to protect themselves and their privacy and uh, someone like you who spreads the word both you know, on the air and uh, with your publications is, is playing a crucial role in terms of making sure people get it and then they get with it once they've gotten the message about the importance of privacy and the way they can protect their own. 
Well, we're going to send people to senatorsumidian.com, and we just think you are the best, and we'll have you on again very soon. Thank you for all your great work. Looking forward to it. Thanks a million. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Look at our upcoming guests and download podcasts. Listen to archived interviews and write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.